something that's true about every human being that's ever lived is that every one of us has a father. Perhaps you had a good father or have a good father. Perhaps you didn't. Perhaps you lost your father when you were young. Or perhaps your father abandoned you. Perhaps you had a good experience. Your father loved you and cared for you, provided for you, was a model for you of godliness and Christ-likeness. Or perhaps you had a father that was abusive. Whether verbally or physically, or perhaps passively, though he was around, he was rarely present. In a room this size, given the fallenness of our world, every one of us have unique and different experiences with our fathers. Some good, some bad. Knowing this is important because when we open the scriptures and we hear words like God is our father, we like going on a vacation, come to that truth with a bunch of baggage, luggage filled with good and bad, perhaps not even filled at all. Perhaps this morning when you come to the word and you hear that God is your father. You have no earthly idea what a father is to be like. Or perhaps this morning. All you have is a distorted view. Perhaps a father that spoiled you and gave you everything you ever wanted. So you go to God as Father, expecting Him to give you everything that you want. When He says no, you stomp your feet like a spoiled little brat. Friend, this morning as we think about God as our Father, we need to ask the Spirit to help us to see through the brokenness of our own lives and our own experiences. And to come to God's word to understand when God says he's his father, our father rather, what that means. What it means for our lives together. And how often, because of the struggles in our own lives, we struggle to trust God. As our father. We have a misunderstanding. About what it means. Now you'd be reminded that Paul. Began praying in chapter 3 in verse 1. A few weeks ago we considered that text. And in that I started with. This truth that Paul like us gets distracted in prayer. So often when we sit down to pray we. We get so easily distracted with the cares of this world. And Paul was no different. And in chapter 3 and verse 1, he he begins to pray. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, 
on behalf of you Gentiles. And as soon as he utters the word ta'ethne, Gentile, nations, Paul is again filled with a heart for lost people, particularly a people that is not his. Paul being a Jew, he grew up in home, in his home and and in his place of worship, hearing that the message of salvation was only for the Jews. But God in his grace has expanded that message. And that message now goes to the nations. That through the Jewish Messiah, the nations will be saved. Through the Christ, the Son of God, God is reconciling the world to himself. And Paul is so taken in by this, he stops his prayer And dives into the mystery of Christ. This mystery that's now displayed through the local church. Where Jew and Gentile. Slave and free. Rich and poor. People of all ethnic groups are united together through the blood of Christ. Where we're brothers and sisters. And as Paul is reflecting on this truth. Of God's work. In reconciling. Sinners to himself. As God is reconciling not only sinners to himself, but sinners to sinners. Paul prays. That they would know the power of God available to them. The prayer of Paul that we're going to consider over the next few weeks is probably, possibly, one of Paul's most well-known prayers Popular, you could say. Perhaps more expositions, more sermons have been preached on this prayer than even the Lord's Prayer. Because of its richness and the depth. Many of you would have known this prayer from particularly verse 18. As Paul prays that they would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length Height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with the knowledge of God. A prayer so deep and so wonderful and so exhaustive. That we're going to spend three weeks thinking about it. So I invite you to turn this morning to Ephesians chapter 3. And while we could have considered this in one sermon I think the theological point that Paul makes in verses 14 and 15 must be sort of meditated on for just a moment. Because it really is the foundation of all that Paul is going to ask. If we don't get verse 14 and 15 right, then we have no confidence to ask what Paul is asking. This is, if you will, a big ask of Paul. This is... Really large. This is not a a small prayer request. This is a massively huge prayer request. For that, we need to know who he's asking these things from. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. And we're going to consider this morning verses 14 and 15. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, rather, he may grant you to be strengthened with his power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, 
that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints rather, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the knowledge of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Christians pray to God as Father because God is the sovereign creator who brought us as Christians into existence and sustains us by his sovereign power. So this is what we want to think about, particularly thinking deeply about God as our Father in heaven, particularly in our prayers. So when we pray, what does it mean that we approach God as Father? What does it mean when we utter the Lord's prayer, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name? What does it mean that we pray for power from the Spirit to the Father? Well, as as I read, I hope you noticed a repeated word throughout this prayer. This word unites the whole prayer together, and it's the word power. Paul is praying For the power of God to be realized in their everyday life. That the eternal creator God who spoke the cosmos into existence with a word would be available to them through the simple means of prayer. And delivered by the spirit. The word power is the centerpiece of this prayer. And Paul wants us to know the power of God. He wants us to know about it, but more importantly, to rely upon it. In other words, to know that God's power is not just operative out in the universe, but that it's available to us as Christians by the Spirit. God's power is at work through us. As Christians. This is huge. This is earth shattering. This is life changing. That the sovereign God. Would work through our lives. And so Paul outlines in verses 14 and 15. Three P's. So three. I have three P's. I don't often alliterate like this. But it just happened. So here we go. Um, And there's a lot of P's here. So hang with me here. Uh, The three P's of praying from a position of power. So praying to God from a position of power. In other words, as we approach God, we're not just relegated to some subservient place, but rather we pray from a position as sons and daughters of God. And so we'll see here these three P's. Number one, purpose. Paul prays with purpose. When we pray, we're to pray with purpose. There's a reason. Paul says, for this reason I pray. Secondly, we'll see that we're to pray with a certain posture. Paul approaches God with a posture of humility. And so we want to think about how we pray. And finally, Paul prays from a personal relationship with God. 
In other words, we want to think about to whom do you pray? To whom do you pray? So these are the three P's when we consider purpose, posture, and personal. First, purpose. Notice what Paul says, verse 14. For this reason, for this reason I pray, Paul says. Well, Paul here is again, notice if the parallel to verse 1 of chapter 3. He's simply picking up where he left off. For this reason. For what reason is Paul praying? Well, I think as, we, as Paul meditated on the wonder of God's eternal plan in Christ, it led him to pray. Look, look at verse 10, for example, of chapter 1. Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, has revealed that the gospel is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. In other words, Paul was taken captive by the cosmos of God's plan, the eternity of God's plan, that his plan is not new or novel. God's plan is eternal. From before the time began, for before he ever spoke one word, one molecule into existence, God had purposed to save a people through his son. Paul was taken in also by God's work of redemption through Christ. He spent all of chapter 2 thinking about this vertical reconciliation through the gospel that those who were once dead are now alive. That those who were once far off are brought near. But more than that, there was this horizontal reconciliation that we've considered and thought about. How you and I have been brought into a family, made into a temple of God. That one another, that we are together, not apart. And so a congregation of local believers is not a a gathering of a bunch of individuals, but rather a corporate body, united through the blood of Christ. Or consider chapter 2 and verse 20, when Paul writes that, We are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also, he says, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. If God is at work breaking down barriers and uniting a people together, that takes a tremendous amount of power and strength. An effort. And he wants them to know that all of that is available to them through Christ. Or perhaps in chapter 3 as Paul reveals to us the mystery of the gospel through the, to the Gentiles. That you and I can be included in the promises of God this morning is a mystery. It's wonderfully glorious. Something in which we'll spend Eternity in awe of. Or perhaps what led Paul to pray was verse 10 of chapter 3. That the church that Paul has spent his life serving, for which he is locked in prison, chained to a Roman guard in a dark, cold pit. That church that he has given his life to see built is meant to display God's glory among the cosmos. 
In other words, the gospel is why Paul prayed. Paul was taken in by the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He couldn't get over what God was doing in the lives of individuals. Rebels who once hated God. Men like men and women like himself, who was a terrorist, who would see, see nothing but to see the church eradicated from the face of the earth. This gospel of grace that had come to him through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who had taken his hard and evil and wicked heart and had broken it. So that no longer did he want to kill for the church, but be killed for the sake of the church. What reasons drive you to pray? If we were to take a survey, even perhaps this morning, and listen to the prayers that we prayed in Sunday school, or the prayers that we pray as we go to bed in the evening. Surely there's nothing wrong to pray for physical need. Nothing at all to pray for material blessings, for help. But how often is what drives us to prayer is for selfish gain? Paul here doesn't say, pray for me that I would warm up a little bit or that the guards wouldn't be so cruel with me. In fact, as Paul ends this letter, turn to chapter 6. Again, remind, remind yourself, Paul's in prison. And he finally gets to some prayer requests at the, at the end of chapter 6. Look at verse 18, Paul says, in the middle of verse 18, he says, To that end, keep alert, persevere, making supplication for all the saints. Paul says, pray for all the saints. Oh, hey, by the way, he says, in verse 19, and pray for me. Notice what he prays for. Pray, pray for my, my health. Pray for, pray for my financial health. Pray that I get that new car, that new job, or, or whatever. No, he says, pray for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to, be a, to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. In other words, that I might stand before Caesar. That I might stand before the holy emperor and hail Jesus as Lord, not you, Caesar. Those are gospel prayers. Paul, even here in chapter 3, isn't praying for himself or really even for material or physical things for the church, but rather notice what he prays for. He prays that they might know the power of God. That they might know God. Brothers, sisters, what drives you to prayer? I'm reminded of years ago, John Stott, and I've used this illustration before, but I think it's helpful and I'll use it again. John Stott was traveling on vacation, on holiday in England. He's a well-known, he was a well-known pastor in England. And, and uh, as John Stott was traveling, he happened upon a village church. He entered this church, small gathering of saints. 
And a, a somewhat older man stepped into the pulpit and began to pray. First, he began to pray for the pastor who happened to be on holiday. And Stott said, well, of course, that's fine to pray for the pastor. We hope he has a, a good holiday. Uh, then the, the, the gentleman happened upon praying for sister so-and-so who wasn't well. And then happened to pray for another brother who needed help. And then the man sat. And as Stott sat there almost stunned at the, the brevity of the prayer, he said this, that these people must be a village church with a village God. For they give little time or little energy to praying for great matters, kingdom matters. But pray for only things that are temporary and that will not last. Brothers and sisters, how often do we gather and pray as a village people with a village God? A small God. A God who is unable to do anything. A God who is only consumed with our own individual comforts rather than the gospel. Friends, again, it's not wrong to pray for those things. We, other examples in scripture where we are led to pray for material or physical needs. Nothing wrong with that. But why does it seem to dominate my prayers and your prayers? When is the last time you got the sort of awakened anxiety in the middle of the night to pray, not for the safety of your family, but for the lost who will die without the Lord? When is the last time that you were so broken to know that your friends and family, maybe your own children, if they do not repent and trust in Christ, Spend an eternity in hell. Well, when is the last time that you were consumed in prayer for gospel work going on in your home and in your work? Friends, if we truly understand that God is at work to save sinners, prayer is an invitation into God's eternal and sovereign purposes. God is saying, listen, I'm, I'm, I don't want you to save people. I'm saving a people for myself. I can do that. I don't need you to do that. I will save my people. But here's what I want you to do. I'm inviting you to participate in my sovereign purposes through prayer. Through prayer. The purpose of praying must be a gospel purpose. This is why we want to end our prayers by saying that our prayer is for God's glory and our eternal good. We don't do that formulaic way, but rather we do that to emphasize the point that our prayers are not for us, but for God and his glory. Well, secondly, we see here in verse 14, to pray from a position of power requires a certain posture. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. I bow my knees, Paul says, before the Father. Now, for you and I, as we read this, we're like, well, okay, right. We, we've all heard the jokes about the guy with the hole in his knees uh, because he prays. And you and I are accustomed to that. But for a Jew to pray, kneeling was rather unheard of. 
In fact, today, if you were to go to the Wailing Wall, you will not find Jews kneeling, praying. You'll find them standing. Because that's what Jews do. When they pray, they stand and pray. And so for Paul to be kneeling here is something quite different. It's strange. Of course, there's examples in the Old Testament. Uh, Solomon, for example, kneeling and praying. Daniel and others. But simply put, Jews don't often kneel. So Paul here is intentionally telling us. Notice here, in this whole section, you never find the word prayer once. And the little title at the top doesn't count. That was added. Well, how do we know that Paul's praying? Isn't it fascinating how we do things? Uh, we don't really know why we do them. You don't know why we emphasize bowing in prayer? Because of this verse. Because Paul is modeling for us prayer. Because we saw our Lord do it, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he went a little ahead of the disciples and he fell down on his knees and began to weep before the Father. The picture is quite clear, isn't it? A picture of humiliation. Uh, one bows before a king. One bows before someone who is greater than them. Uh, one bows to demonstrate their humble place. Paul says, I am not worthy to approach you, God. I come begging. I come as a beggar in humble position, in humiliation. More than that, we see it's a picture of desperation. A picture of desperation, a picture of pleading, help me, I can't do it. If you don't answer this, it won't be done. More than that, you can't get anything done on your knees, can you? I remember years ago, you know, we used to tell the kids, you know, they'd be crawling around doing stuff. And I'm like, you get up, walk on your feet, clean up on your feet. You can't get anything done when you're kneeling around, right? I was used to kid with the kids about that. It's hard to work on your knees. Anybody that's ever had to work in a profession where you got to work on your knees, it hurts. It's painful. And to be honest with you, you can't get a lot done on them. It's hard. You're almost immobile. And that's the point. Paul on his knees, he can't do anything. It's a demonstration that the power is not in him, but rather in God. Paul himself shows this desperation in Acts chapter 20 when he goes before the Ephesian elders. In Acts chapter 20, it's a beautiful picture of Paul's passion for this church. In, Ephesians, or excuse me, in Acts chapter 20, in verse 36, we are told, uh, Luke tells us this. And when Paul had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with the elders. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. Being sorrowful most of all because the word that he had spoken, that is the word that he was going to go die. And that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Paul had modeled this kind of prayer to the Ephesians already. They knew it well. That he was bowing in humiliation and desperation. And brothers and sisters, the way Paul approaches the Father here is, I think, instructive for us. How do you approach God in prayer? As I said at the beginning, if we approach God as Father, and your Father gave you everything you ever wanted, then you're going to approach God the same way. You're going to think that you're entitled to answers to prayer. That you're going to be entitled 
to relief from suffering. You're going to think that you're entitled to not suffer at all. You're going to think that you deserve everything at God's disposal. How do you approach God in prayer? Do you approach Him with pride? Uh, Seeing prayer as merely a means to an end? If I do this, then God will do that. It's kind of bribery. A way to bribe God. Okay, I'll say the Lord's Prayer. I'll do the little formula. A plus B equals C. I'll do the steps. And then God must answer. Or do you come to Him humbly? You see, pride leads us to believe that the power is in us. We're just like, yeah, God, you know, I'm going to do it anyways. But I'm just, you know, kind of cluing you in on what's happening right now. Or do we approach Him the way the Apostle Paul approached God in 2 Corinthians when he said, three times I pleaded with the, with the Father that He would remove the thorn of my flesh. I used to sit underneath a preacher who believed that anything you ask in Jesus' name, He would answer. I mean anything. You can imagine how corrupt that is. And I would always point to that text. I would say, but Paul, the super apostle Paul, who had all these awesome prayers, he prayed three times. And I think that was meant to communicate. I prayed a lot of times, and it was more than three. And God said, no, no, no. Why? Because my grace is sufficient. For my power is perfected in your weakness, not strength. Pride leads us to think that we can do it on our own, but humility allows for God's power to work in our lives. Paul is picturing what he's praying for. He's coming in his posture and saying, we can't do it. God must act. He's undone. Now, again, I don't think nor did the scripture teach that we must pray on our knees. So, so this morning, you, you may find it helpful to pray as you're walking. I, I enjoy that. I like just walking, roaming around, praying. Uh, perhaps you like to just sit. Perhaps it's in your car. It's like the only place where there's nobody distracting you, right? Which is scary if you're driving that way. But regardless, um, right? You're just praying, right? Or perhaps it's in your office in the early hours of the morning when nobody's around. You grow early and you just, you, you get on your knees before the Father. Not physically, but your heart posture is one of humility. Brothers, we must go to God with a purpose. It must be gospel oriented. It must be for the sake of the gospel. It must have a posture of humility. And notice here finally in verse 14 and 15, That praying from a position of power requires a personal relationship with God. In other words, the door is locked. The window is shut. The speaker is turned off. God ain't hearing it. It's from the position of our personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Notice what he says here. He says, for I bow my knees before Who? The Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is is named. Uh, Paul has introduced earlier in the letter this aspect that God our Father, verse 2, 
God our Father. Or verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The whole theology that Paul has been building upon, for example, in chapter 1 and verse 5, look there if you will, that in love the Father predestined us for what? Adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In other words, one cannot call upon God as Father unless they've been purchased through the blood of the Son. Unless they've been adopted according to God's eternal purpose in Jesus Christ. So you'll hear a popular thing occasionally, it's not as popular anymore, um, that we're all the children of God. All of humanity is the children of God. No, no, no. We're the children of Adam. And the children of Adam are destined to eternal damnation, save Jesus Christ coming. No, no, no. We're only God's children so as we've been adopted into his family. But the point we want to see here is that Paul calls him the father. The father. In Psalm 68 and verse 5, David writes that God is the father of the fatherless. Or in Psalm 89, David cries, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Of course, this is what Jesus quotes. My my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus taught his disciples. Uh, We heard so clearly in Luke chapter 11. Jesus, teach us to pray like John taught his disciples to pray. Jesus is like, cool, we're going to do this. I'll show you how to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven. In other words, you're going to approach God as your father, as my father. Because when you approach him, he will see you as me. The only reason he will hear you is because you're united with me. So it makes sense then when Paul writes here, look at chapter 2. In verse 5. Or rather, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly paces in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? Do you hear that? You remember that? Union with Christ. Imputed righteousness. Our access to the Father comes through faith in Christ. Well, look at chapter 3 and verse 12. In whom, in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the only reason we approach the Father as Father is because we've been adopted through Jesus Christ. And if that's true, that transforms how we pray. We don't come then to God as stepchildren. We don't come to God as some unimportant people. Like, 
If I get time, I'll, I'll listen to your prayers. No. We approach God as his children. That's, of course, why Paul would say in chapter 5, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. God loves you, he says. You're, you're his beloved children. Once rebels who hated him, whom he was going to destroy. But yet he's welcomed you and adopted you into his family. And he's not said, you know, I want you to sweep the floors and take out the trash. And No, he said, no, you come and dine with me and feast with me. And I will give you everything and my son will give you all that is his and you will be heirs with Christ. Brothers and sisters, when we pray, we pray that God is our father. Friends, if God is your father through Christ, if you're a Christian this morning, it brings tremendous comfort in a broken and fallen world. In a world where you have been suffering because of your earthly father. Know this morning you have a father in heaven who is holy and righteous. Who's good. Perhaps you ha- you're one of those ones that could tell some stories about the way your father abused you. Or the way your father neglected you. Perhaps you're one that grows discouraged when you hear the stories about others. About the good times they had with their dad. And and you hear about how godly they were and a model of Christ's likeness. And and you just grow envy. You're like, oh, I just wish that was me. You have a father in heaven. Who's holy and righteous. Who loves you. And will provide everything you need. Brothers and sisters, there is much comfort in this point. That we do cry out to God, Abba, Father. That we are His children. And therefore we are under His good authority. Under His good rule. You want to think more about that, you can consider in Hebrews. where The author of Hebrews reveals to us that That if we're his children, then that means we get disciplined too. And it's only because God loves us that he disciplines us. That he says no to us. That that that's actually more loving, right? To say no than yes. Brothers and sisters, the point remains that the confidence we have in our prayers when we petition God in whatever we ask, We ask it from that position of power. So we approach God for the purpose and reason of the gospel. God, we want to see sinners saved. I want to see my parents saved. I want to see my grandchildren come to Christ. I want to see a generation yet unknown reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that your heart? will come before the Lord with a posture of humility. Come before God with a position of saying, I can't do it unless you do it. Brothers and sisters, I say this so often and it's so true. And, it, and I know many of you, more mature brothers and sisters, have learned this a long time ago. 
And the truth is this, that God only works so that he gets the glory. And sometimes it takes decades to realize that. That God's not really in the business of answering prayer for me, but for him. And that's coming to him with that posture of humility. That prayer is more about God than it is about me. And finally, that we come to him with a personal relationship. Friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, I just want to warn you. That you have no confidence whatsoever. You might think that God is just a loving God and he'll give you whatever you ask. And he may have blessed you in your life materially or physically or many of other ways. I trust that God pours rain on the just and the unjust. It's true. But friend, we cannot miss the truth. That the only way we have access to the Father is through the Son. And friend, this morning, if you're not a Christian, I want to invite you into the kind of relationship that so many of us in here enjoy. To know beyond a shadow of a doubt, with all assurance, that when you go to bed at night, that God is your Father. That if you were to die today and you turn up in heaven, He's not going to be the God revealed in Scripture, a God of wrath. And of justice and of anger, but a God of love and mercy and grace, a Father who will welcome you. Friend, all you have to do is repent, which means stop living your rebellious life against God. Stop trying to do things your own way, stop trying to be your own God, and let God be God. Repent of your sins and trust in the finished work of Christ, his death and his resurrection for your life. And you too can have God as your father. Let's pray. Father, the truth that we have heard in your word is but a a ripple in a vast ocean. Our minds are too weak, too shallow, too finite to grasp all that this means. So we pray your spirit would give us a mind to know that you are our father. You love us care for us you will provide for us all we must do is trust you father help us to see us as the see you as the good father the one wouldn't exchange something good and give us something evil help us to trust that you are a faithful god and in this we pray for your glory amen